from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University, this is Writer's Talk. I'm Doug Dangler. Today, it is an all-student show with OSU MFA student Nick White talking to OSU alumni Mike Cardos and Catherine Pierce about their writings. Also, Lantern reporter Misty Tull talks to OSU playwright and faculty member Jennifer Schleter about her plays. Stay tuned. I'm Nick White, a graduate student in the Creative Writing Program at Ohio State. I am joined today with the fiction writer Michael Cardos and the poet Catherine Pierce, both of whom are graduates of the Masters of Fine Arts program here at OSU. Michael Cardos is the author of the novel The Three-Day Affair and the award-winning story collection One Last Good Time. His short stories have appeared in the Southern Review, Crazy Horse, Prairie Schooner, Blackbird, Prism International, and many other magazines and anthologies, and were cited as notable stories in the 2009, 2010, and 2012 editions of Best American Short Stories. Catherine Pierce is the author of two books of poetry, The Girls of Peculiar and Famous Last Words, and the chapbook Animals of Habit. Her poems have appeared in the Best American Poetry. Slate, Boston Review, Plowshares, Field, The Cincinnati Review, Court Green, Arts and Letters, and elsewhere. Both live in Starkville, Mississippi, where they teach and co-direct the creative writing program at Mississippi State University. They are also married, and full disclosure, are former professors and mentors of mine. So it's a huge honor to be able to interview them for Writer's Talk. Thank you for being here. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for having us. Mike, Tom Franklin said about your novel, I dare you to pick up The Three-Day Affair and read a page or two and then put it down. It can't be done. With a combination of dread and glee, I tore through this book and was sorry when it was over. And I was wondering, when you wrote this novel, what came first? Was it the characters or was it the intense plot, the suspenseful plot, or was it a mix of the both? Um, The novel had a very particular origin, which was a number of years ago, and actually I think when I was here at Ohio State, I had read a newspaper article about um, a bus driver in D.C. who had a bunch of kids in his bus, and he had he was preoccupied with something in, in his home life, and he skipped one of the stops and was then so concerned about that, he skipped one of the other stops and then ended up skipping more and more. And before he knew it, he had hijacked his own school bus. And I just thought that was great, and I didn't want to read any more about the article. And I ended up writing a story about a bus driver who essentially did that, and that became the title story in the collection. But I didn't feel like I was done yet playing with this idea of a guy who's, he's not a bad guy, but uh, given enough time, he might even make some good decisions. But because he's driving, he doesn't have enough time to make those kinds of decisions and ends up making really bad ones. And so... um, the novel is in a different set of characters and a different circumstance, but that's kind of what kicked it off for me with this idea of put a guy in a car, give him a really good reason to stop and a really good reason not to stop and then see what happens. So um, I think there was a bit of, um, I knew that it would be a little fast paced there early on. Um, and I think the pacing is something that happens so much by feel that just the more I got working on the novel, the more I got uh, the feel of the pacing. And part of that is going sort of a back forward, back forward between the present action and, and the flashbacks. You mentioned uh, One Last Good Time. And I was wondering if you could elaborate a little on the differences or the unexpected challenges uh, from writing a short story to writing a novel. I think the, the, the biggest difference for me is that the stakes were bigger. You know, the story collection has 10 stories in it, um, but I probably wrote 20. 
And the ones that weren't working as well, you know, you can chalk it up to a learning experience and move on. Or maybe, you know, it ended up being a different kind of story that I did something else with that didn't end up in the book. Um, the novel, because you, know, you spend a long time, you know, years working on the same sustained narrative, um, the, st- the stakes just felt higher for me, um, where, um, you know, I didn't, yes, if the novel totally didn't work, um, and it blew up in my face. I, I guess I could say, well, at least I learned something. But it's a, it's a harder thing to say to yourself when you spend that kind of time on it. So to me, that was that was that was the biggest difference. All right. Um, did you set out to write a quote unquote thriller, or did that moniker just get sort of tacked on by critics and editors? Yes. Um, well, well, what happened was I I didn't set out to write a thriller, but I also didn't set out to not write a thriller. In other words, I tried to set out to write the kind of book I wanted to read. And um, and there's certainly a crime right at the middle of the story. It happens in the first chapter, and the whole rest of the novel deals with essentially trying to undo the crime. So um, it's not a shock that it was called a crime novel, but I, I didn't really think about that consciously. And then when the book um, went out to my agent and she sent it out to publishers, it ended up um, in, in the hands of a crime publisher, Mysterious Press. I'm really glad. I think it, it's helped a lot um, sort of position the book, but it was the same, you know, it's not like I set out consciously to do that. Um, in the Huffington Post article that you wrote about the, which I love the graph, by the way, that you did, but of literary fiction and genre fiction. <laughs> Thanks. And uh, you found that your books that you liked sort of fell in the middle of that continuum. And I was just mm-hmm. wondering, would you place your book in that con- middle? I think so. Um, you know, the continuum was this, it was kind of tongue in cheek, but I think there was also something useful in there. This idea that, um, you know, on, on the one end and the other end, we had, you know, easy, an easy book, however you define easy, and then on the other end, difficult, however you define difficult. And then in the other directions, we had uh, stuff and no stuff. So a, a novel with stuff would be, you know, a hardcore science fiction novel that takes place in outer space with, you know, attack whales with, you know, space fins or whatever. And then at the very bottom would be uh, something completely realistic. And and the novels I've been liking recently, and probably have always liked the best, have those are those books that sit somewhere in the middle that, um, you know, like I'm thinking about writers like Jonathan Lethem, who's a de- writing detective novels, kind of, or Richard Price, who's, again, like detective novels, kind of, or um, a, a novel that I loved recently was um, City of Thieves by ben- David Benioff. Um, you know, writers like Tom Parada or Nick Hornby, are they writing commercial fiction or literary fiction? I don't really know, but um, but I like them. They have good stories and they're well written. So that is, I guess, something that I tried to emulate. Katie, in Girls of Peculiar, you write a lot about the high school experience, which I relate to, even though I was not a girl. Uh, what is it about that time in our lives that interests you so much as a poet? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think that what it was for me is that that's a time when a lot of things are in flux. So you have pressures coming at you from all sides. There's the the pressures of youth and of kind of hanging on to childhood, but there are also the pressures of entering adulthood, the adult world. And I think it's a time when it's possible to feel very much in two separate worlds simultaneously. You feel youthful and you feel hopefully hopeful and you feel like anything could happen at the same time you might also feel kind of world-weary as you're beginning to realize all these challenges that you will face as an adult and as you start to sort of make that move into adulthood. And so I was really interested in that tension that exists for me, and it seemed to me like a very rich ground for poetry. From 
final words from infamous people through history and uh, to Castle's Dictionary of Superstitions. Um, you seem to find a lot of prompts for your poems, and I was just wondering how do you come across your material? Does it find you, or do you find it, and how do you know? I do. I do use a lot of... Um I, I've written a lot of series of poems, so what you mentioned were the, the castles. I found, actually at Half Price Books uh, in Columbus a few years ago, I found a copy of Castle's Dictionary of Superstitions. It was $6. I thought it sounded interesting, so I bought it. And so I started writing a series of poems based on the different definitions of superstitions in that book, or write the famous last words. Um, I think that I'm always looking for, I like writing series because it it helps me to, it gives me a current to ride. And it also helps me to move out of myself somewhat and try to access a different kind of story. So I think I'm always on the lookout for things like that. I wouldn't say that it's so much a, a conscious search, but I think that I am always kind of keeping an eye out for things like that that appeal to me. The Last Words poems, I'd written a poem about the last words of Billy the Kid, which were Kianess or Who Is It, which he said, right before he was shot by uh, the sheriff, Pat Garrett. And I was so interested in that whole idea and in building this this world around those last words that it appealed to me so much, I wanted to keep going with it. So often I'll write one, and then if I like it, I'll, I'll keep going. But I'm always kind of on the lookout. This is sort of a broad question, I know, but I'm, I'm curious about this. Uh, you've written three books now, and I was wondering, like from your chat book, Animals of Habit, to now your latest one, how have you changed probably most as a poet, aesthetically or subject mm-hmm. material? I think that, I think there have been a few changes. Um, with, the fir- with the chat book, Animals of Habit, I think I was working very hard not to write autobiographically. Because prior to that point, I had been pretty much only been writing autobiographically. And so I wanted to break out of that. So those poems, most of them have to do with something outside of myself. Um, The next book sort of blended those worlds. And then the most recent book, while it's not autobiographical necessarily, I do think that those poems feel probably to a reader somewhat more personal. So I think that's been a a shift that I've made, trying to find ways to, to blend those different types of writing. Would you say you had to come back to yourself, probably? Yeah, in a way. way, I think I had to sort of Mm -hmm. learn how to, I needed to learn how to use lenses in the right way. Rather than just sort of coming at something directly, I needed to find a way to filter it through something else. So that's one thing that I've been kind of working on lately. And aesthetically, I think that with the last book in particular, with The Girls of Peculiar, those poems, I was particularly interested in paying attention to sound and to um, cutting all the fat from those poems. So there are a lot of short poems in the book, and there are some longer poems too, but all of those poems started much longer and then got shorter and shorter and shorter as I tried to trim them down to their, their essences. So that was something that I was really focused on in that last book. Both of you have been living in Mississippi, my old stomping ground, for how many years now? Five. Yeah. How has... And that Mississippi has a rich literary tradition. How has living in the South affected your writing, or has it? Can I go first? Sure. I mean, the, the briefest answer is I don't know. Um, I've 
I try to write Mississippi stories. You know, usually I can't write about a place until I'm no longer living there. And I've written two stories that take place in Mississippi. And the first one, I really don't know if it's working or not. Um, but the second one, which I like better, features a narrator from New Jersey who's living in Mississippi. And I think like you're talking about lenses a minute ago. I think this idea of perceiving the world through a character who's not from there which is kind of what I do, uh, made it a little bit easier to write about Mississippi. So I think that's one change. But as far as, you know, the sort of more like the zeitgeist of Mississippi, you know, I don't know how it's exactly changed me as a writer. It probably has in some way. For me, um, up until about two years ago, I couldn't have probably answered this question very well. I mean, I think that, yeah, I'd written a few poems that had to do with Mississippi, but like Mike said, they were... I wasn't quite sure if they were working, and I, I also wanted to have better distance from what I was writing about. And but um, a couple years ago, there was a, a big the tornado outbreak that happened uh, in the Deep South, and that that day I've been thinking about this anyway because we do have a lot of, as you know, tornado warnings frequently in Mississippi, and I'd already been wanting to write some poems about tornadoes. But after that terrifying day, it kind of exploded as a project, and so I'm working now on a new book, a series of poems that have um, this this tornado outbreak at their heart, or at least a tornado, not necessarily that day. But it's about a, a series of poems about a town impacted by a tornado. And so I have recurring characters, and one of them is the tornado itself. And I have different sort of people that the book or the poems in this hypothetical book follow. And so, and that's directly influenced by having lived in the South for a number of years and having experienced what the weather systems are like there. You uh, have recently become parents to the adorable baby Sam. <laughs> and I was wondering, how has becoming a parent affected you as a writer? Go first. Okay. Um, I think there, there are a few ways. One is sort of, again, the, the aesthetic choices that we make. And then the other is just the practical reality of it. Um, in terms of the poems... Some of the poems that I'm dealing with now or that I'm working on now do have one of the recurring characters in this tornado series is a mother and and she has a child. And so that's kind of what I mean when I talk about that lens or that filter. She's not me and the child is not Sam, but I'm obviously drawing all my own experiences, my own feelings in writing that. So I do think that that elements of that are coming out in my own poetry. But again, I want to have it filtered through something. Um, I think that I'm more objective and better able to craft the poems that way. So that's coming out as a theme. Um, practically speaking, we just have to use our time a whole lot better than we ever did before. So we, during the summer, we worked in shifts. We would each take three hours. Mike would take three hours in the morning. I would take three hours in the afternoon. And we would go to the library and we would work for those three hours. And the rest of the time we'd hang out with Sam. And, you know, we sort of, I, I found that I can become really efficient when I need to be. So that's been a change for me. Yeah, the second part of that answer, absolutely. Um, it's It's been, the, the timing thing is really is really interesting. But I think as far as the work itself, um, I, I haven't really noticed a, a lot uh, of, of, you know, I haven't written about parenthood, uh, although I'm about to, in the thing I'm working on now, there is a, a one of the characters does have a young daughter. And and I think it's some of the practical things. Like I wouldn't have been able to write about the act of getting a child into a car seat in the back of a car and like how to put the buckles on and what that feels like. So I think some of those practicalities, obviously. All right, this last question is just a fun one for my own amusement. And Mike, I, I was wondering, 
what was your favorite poem by Katie? <laughs> and why? I think, well, there's two. Okay. Uh, one is um, a little one of the poems that's a little more autobiographical that that I particularly like. Um, well, I, I, but I want to talk about the other one. Okay. The the other one, um, when I really realized that Katie is the one for me, when she wrote about a cat just ripping a raccoon apart, and it's just so great. And kind of gross, but it's really, really mo- moving too. So you know, what's that poem called? Emerge? No, it's, uh, it's instinct. Instinct, yeah. And then, and then after the the animal just gets totally ripped apart, the next line is, "This is a love poem," which is just, mm. it's really awesome. Mm. Romantics. Uh, <laughs> Katie, the same question for you. What is your favorite story and our longer piece that Mike has written, and why? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I really, I mean, I love his work. I think that, gosh, my favorite one, I've gone back and forth. I mean, I think that in the story collection, I think the novel is amazing. And I think it's just fantastic and it blows me away. I've read it a few times and it blows me away every time. Um, in terms of the short stories, I, I'm always a fan of, uh, there's a story called Behind the Music, mm-hmm. which you worked on here, actually. Mm-hmm. And... It's about um, a kid, a boy who, among other things, sort of works in a, a haunted mansion for the summer and is going through some things in his, his personal life. And it's sort of a coming of age story. And I, I just find it really moving. And the end of it just, just really gets me every time. So that's one of my, my favorites. All right. Thank you guys so much for coming. You were wonderful. Thank Thank you you for having us. From the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at Ohio State University, this was Nick White. That was OSU MFA Nick White talking to OSU creative writing alumni Mike Cardos and Catherine Pierce. And now we're happy to feature some poems from Catherine Pierce. This is a poem called Dear Adam Baum. Dear Adam Baum, I confess, you were my high school obsession. You bloomed inside my chest until I howled. You shook me with your booming zillion wattage. You were bigger than rock and roll. I lost days to you, the way you expanded to become more than even yourself. In science class movies, you puffed men like microwaved marshmallows, raked blood from their insides, and always I could feel your heat like a massive cloak around my shoulders. You embarrassed me. You were too depraved for dignity, not caring whose eyes you melted, whose innards oozed. You balled up control in your god-huge palms and tossed it into the stratosphere. Oh, atom bomb, I miss you. These days, my mind is no incandescent blur, but a narrow infrared beam spotlighting bounded fears. Cancer in a single throat, a shock of blood on the clean sheets, a careless turn from the grocery store lot into the pickup with the pit bull in the bed. Oh, Adam Baum, come back. Take me away from the twitch in my leg, the cracking lead paint, the lurking salmonella. Sweep me up in your blinding white certainty. Make me sure once again that I'll live till the world's brilliant end. And this poem is called For This You Have No Reason. In Sacramento, a Virgin Mary has begun spilling blood from its stone eyes. Articles offer theories. A prank? A rusting mineral? There is no explanation, I say over and over, my heart tensed like a fist. Once at Chez La Mer, 
I watched a magician turn silver coins into yellowfin tuna while diners ood. When the room shuddered with calls for the big reveal, I ducked outside, humming to cover the sound of the secret. Here are facts. The dog gone for a decade makes its way to Arizona and finds its family still pining, now joy-struck. The wooden Christ in St. Stephen's Cathedral grows hair and is groomed every year before Easter. A friend's father saw three UFOs zoom into a lit triangle, then shoot to far corners of the lake-dark sky. He was not a man who lied. For years, I found playing cards face down on sidewalks, and each was the jack of hearts. Absurd, but I swear this is true. Here, each face said, for this you have no reason. Each new finding shores up something always close to collapse inside my ribs. Let these strangenesses be like the impossible lizard's tail. Gone forever, because how could it be otherwise? And then reappearing, iridescent and blood-warmed, because how could it be otherwise? Now, OSU Lantern reporter Misty Tull talks to OSU playwright and faculty member Jennifer Schleter about her plays. I'm here with Jennifer Sleeter today, an assistant professor in the Department of Theater. So when did you get to Ohio State? Um, I started teaching here in the fall of 2010, um, and before that I was teaching at the University of Oregon in Eugene, but I got my PhD here several years before that. So Okay. Um, and what were you doing at in, in Eugene, in Oregon, the same kind of thing? I was, yeah. I was an assistant professor there, um, teaching playwriting and theater history um, and mentoring grad and undergrad students. Okay. And um, how many plays have you written or co-written? I have written and seen produced uh, four plays, uh, two of them with the Forward Company, the theater company that's producing North um, off-Broadway. Um, one of them toured the state of Oregon. It was an adaptation of Emma Dross's young adult novel, um, Anna Lee in the Depths of the Night. And one of them was a short uh, children's piece. Okay. And uh, what, what is North about? North um, is about Anne Morrow Lindbergh, who was uh, the wife to Charles Lindbergh, who most people know for his flight across uh, the Atlantic. Um, she also was a pilot in her own right, and she was a writer. Um, so when um, my collaborator, Christina Ritter, and I were looking for a piece to work on, we were interested in Anne Lindbergh in part because her writings were so poetic, um, and she one of the things that she wrote a lot about was um, the guy who wrote the book, The Little Prince, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. My French is so bad, right? <laughs> um, but um, she had met him once, and she sort of, I mean, it seems from her journals that she fell like in love with him, really, although not, nothing was consummated, nothing ever happened, but she wrote about him again and again and again across her life. So um, the way Christina and I work with the Forward Company is that I build the plays entirely out of material from the historical record. So um, every word that's in the play was written down at one point in time by Anne Lindbergh, by Charles Lindbergh, or, or by St. X. Um, so we took this real event and then used it to sort of explore her life, her anxieties about being a professional writer and also a mother of six children, one of whom was abducted and, and murdered. So it's sort of her life in the middle of this big celebrity. Great. And uh, how do you approach when you write plays, not just this one, is that the sort of approach that you take? Do you write from a um, historical perspective? Is that how you uh, come up with your plays? I am 
I'm moved by history. Um, and so in like the other half of my life, I'm teaching history classes. So I think it's probably true to say that I'm motivated by it and everything that I write. Um, and two of the plays that I've done have been built entirely out of material from the historical record, uh, North and Little Book. Um, my other work didn't sort of begin that way, though I think, I suppose everything I, I think everything is driven by it for me, but only two of the four have really been built out of other people's writings. And uh, when is North, is it going to be at Ohio State and then it's going to Broadway? Um, I'm I'm being granted some space at Ohio State for rehearsals and to sort of get the piece remounted. Um, it was first staged in Chicago uh, in 2008 um, and revised and restaged um, at LexArts in 2000 and. Uh, 11, and now we're remounting it again. Um, there'll be a one-night performance, September 29th, in Mount Hall Studio at 7 p.m. It'll be free and open to the public to just sort of see what we've done, and then we'll take it to uh, New York, where it will run um, from October 4th through the 28th. Is this your first uh, play that's gone to New York? It is. It's my first off-Broadway play, so I'm very excited, and I'm very <laughs> nervous, and all those things. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's great. Uh, so tell me about the Forward Company a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, we are a loose affiliation of artists. Um, we aren't place-based, we're project-based. So I'm in Columbus right now. Christina Ritter, my joint artistic director, is living in Lexington, Kentucky. One of our central actors, Chris Roche, is in Philadelphia. Another one of our actors is in um, uh, Montana right now. So. Um, there are a whole lot of people that we have sort of met over the course of our lives that we, we want to work together and we come together for these particular productions. So we all sort of coalesced around doing North in Chicago. We all sort of coalesced around doing Little Book in Seattle in the summer of 2011. And now we're all coming together for this piece. And we are like motivated by the idea that we can do work that's project-based and not have to run a full season. Like lots of theaters end up needing to do five or six shows a year, own a building, maintain a building, constantly maintain an audience. And what we do is really just focus on the work and then finding places to bring us in to showcase that. Oh, great. Okay. And you mentioned Christina. Mm -hmm. She actually is uh, going to be in the play also? That's right, yeah. She and I are joint artistic directors of the company, so we share responsibility for its sort of mission and its movement forward. Um, but she stars in the play North as Anne Morrow Lindbergh, so she's really an actor and a director, and I'm really a writer and a director. And together we collaborate to build these pieces. That's great, okay. I noticed uh, also that you uh, play uh, North actually received some pretty pretty rave reviews from uh yeah. <laughs> in uh, in Chicago. It did. I'm just going to hope it's going to translate <laughs> to New York. But yeah, the, re the, re the critical response was really positive um, in Chicago, which is part of why we were able to build on that and continue to raise money and move into the next steps. Yeah. Is, is that how, um, for people that don't understand how plays work, is that how they work? You get funding or do you get grants or... It totally depends. There are like, there's like two roads, I think. One road is the sort of more traditional road where you, you know, you're at home and you're a writer and you write your play and you're like, oh good, I finished the first draft. I'm going to send it out to a bunch of theaters. And many, many of the big theaters in the nation have literary departments where somebody reads 10 or 20 plays a day to try and find something that they want to stage. And those more traditional theaters build their season. And if they want your play, they'll contact you, they'll pay you royalties, and they'll get staged. But it will often be by people that you don't know. The director is not somebody you know. You won't know the cast. 
and that's the the sort of the way many people um, build their career is submitting their work around and getting it picked up and building momentum, but not having to pay for it themselves or um, mount their own productions. The other road that that I'm taking, that the Forward Company is taking, and that also some artists that I admire are taking, like Anne Bogart and the City Company, like Young Jean Lee um, and her company out of New York, um, want to build the place from beginning to end with people that they trust and that they want to work with. And so they maintain, and we maintain, control over our texts and over their staging, and we aren't submitting them around for random people to produce. But with that sort of excitement comes the responsibility of raising the money, of of hustling for the marketing, of finding your venues, all those things. That's great. Okay. And when did you say that uh, your uh, North is going to be? October 4th through the 28th um, at 59th, 59th Theaters uh, in New York City. That's great. Okay. Okay. I'd like to thank here Jennifer Schleter. And uh, this is Misty Tall from The Lantern. Keep writing. You've been listening to Writer's Talk from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University. More information about any of my guests is available at www.writerstalk.org. Join us next time for Robin Holland, who will discuss the October 27th Columbus Area Writing Project Fall Conference with OSU student Rebecca Marie, and Sharon Creech discusses her latest youth book with OSU student Erin Riley Sanders. Until next time, this is Doug Dangler. Keep writing.